This is Macro Horizons, episode 66. Ready, set, reopen. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 27th. As reopening estimates are bantered around, we're reminded that the key to happiness is to lower expectations, early and often. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. It's been a fascinating week in the Treasury market, and we saw one development which will make the history books to be sure, and that was oil prices trade at negative $40 a barrel. Now, granted, that had to do with storage issues as well as the rolling of the May 20 contract into the June 20 contract. And while the energy complex has remained under pressure, we certainly have not seen a continuation of negative prices. Volumes were very low at negative $40 a barrel for obvious reasons. And at this point, the sense is that the dislocation has passed. However, global demand expectations for the energy complex will keep prices low for the foreseeable future. One of the things that this triggered was a debate around the potential for deflation in the U.S. Downward pressure on headline inflation seems to be a given at this point. Just looking at RBOB and the price for gasoline on a national level, we would expect fuel to weigh on inflation. And this is where it becomes a bigger monetary policy issue. Inflation expectations then subsequently become vulnerable. Medium to long-term inflation expectations have remained very well anchored, and all else being equal, one should expect that they will continue to do so. That has led a bit of a debate in financial markets, but for the time being, the way that that has translated through to treasuries has been muted. There was a drop in 10-year break-evens. Some of that has been recovered, but we're still far below the levels that the Fed would like to see in keeping with their 2% inflation target. In terms of the nominal market, the range that we've been focused on in tens remains 54 to 78 basis points. I don't see that changing anytime soon, certainly not before May gets underway. There's been a lot of chatter about the timing of the reopening of the U.S. economy, and fair enough, that really is the biggest issue currently facing financial markets. When will the U.S. finally come back online? And when that occurs, how many of the job losses already seen will transition from temporary to permanent? That has always been the big risk, and that's what led the Fed and Washington to respond as aggressively and proactively as they have to keep as many businesses going concerns as possible once the lights come back on. 
Unfortunately, this is not a question that investors have enough information to answer at the moment, but it promises to fuel the back and forth. And as we watch the bull market in equity prices continue, we're reminded that while the depths of the recession have yet to be seen in terms of the economic data, investors and financial markets have long since moved on and are focusing on the pace of the recovery. So we do have a Fed meeting on Wednesday, but I think it's fair to say it'll be one to forget. Yeah, I think that's a pretty safe assessment. After all, it's very clear that Powell's Fed doesn't need a meeting to act. And I say that not completely glibly. The fact of the matter is the Fed was responding to a dramatic decline in the prospects for the U.S. economy in a proactive and emergency fashion. So in that context, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to actually wait for the meeting. So I expect that when we do hear from the Fed on Wednesday that the takeaways will be one the Fed stands ready to act and do whatever it takes to keep the U.S. economy functioning after the lockdown. Two, the use of the balance sheet has become the new norm, and we should expect if the situation deteriorates further for the addition of new, as of yet unofficially discussed programs. And three, some groundwork potentially to be laid for yield curve caps. Now, I don't think that there's a great deal of credence to be given to the argument that the Fed should drop rates below zero. I don't think that's on the radar at this point. There will also surely be some discussion around whether or not interest on excess reserves needs to be increased by five basis points to keep the effective rate in the range that the Fed would like it to be. But to characterize that as fine-tuning or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic would be to overstate the point. Ian, one thing that was notably absent from the March emergency FOMC meeting was a new SCP. We didn't get a new dot plot. We didn't get new economic forecasts. At the time, I think that was reasonable given it's better to hold back on guidance rather than throw out something that could be deeply misleading. Do you think we've had enough information over the past few weeks that they would come out with a new dot plot? Maybe not all that interesting for what they're seeing in hikes in 2020, 2021, but maybe 2022, and also an indication of how committee members are thinking about the economic outlook over the next few years. John, that's a great question, and I think it's one that the market hasn't focused on. Ultimately, I don't think that the Fed is in a position to issue new SEPs at this moment. The most likely outcome is that they delay that until June. And when we ultimately do see something in June, we'll have a lot more information about the length of the lockdowns. We'll get a better sense about how destructive the COVID-19 shutdowns were to the real economy and hopefully start to see some initial signs that the labor force is being reengaged and consumption is starting to pick back up. Now, if they were to issue new economic and rate projections, I don't think that the market would give them a great deal of credibility. If for no other reason, then we don't have a true estimate of the depths of the recession. So it's very hard to even begin to project what will happen in 2021, 2022, or beyond. I've seen some estimates about the next Fed rate hike being in 2023 or 2024. And frankly, I think to a large extent, that's somewhat of a throwaway guess. And the reason that I say that is there's so much uncertainty between now and then. 
And by the time we get anywhere close to 2023, those estimates will have been revised so many times to reflect the realities of what we're going to learn about the real economy over the course of the next two or three quarters. Ian, I 100% agree with you on being very skeptical of any of these economic projections that far out. Really what those are is their outputs from a macro model that tries to say, hey, we've had this big impulse. This is what things will look like in the future. And, you know, several quarters out, we think Fed funds is going to push higher in like a Taylor rule logic. We have no idea what's going to come next from a macro framework, largely because we've never seen such a large shock. These models have been calibrated over the past few decades based off of shocks that we've actually realized. This is totally different. So it's not obvious to me at all that the response should be similar. Maybe it's faster, maybe it's much slower, but it'll be important to keep in mind that all these macro models were measured in a period very different from what we're experiencing now. So the output is really grainy, perhaps directionally consistent at best. On the topic of models coming under scrutiny, that has been a key part of the market's discussion in the week that just passed, whether or not the pandemic models have any relevance to the situation facing the U.S. at the current moment. One of the more interesting tidbits of information that has come out of the New York governor's office was an early attempt at a study to see how many people in the New York City area actually had the COVID-19 antibodies. And the results, now this was not a comprehensive study by any means, but the results were roughly one in five people showed antibodies. The implications for the ultimate mortality rate and the implied prudence of a lengthy shutdown are pretty straightforward, But I expect at the end of the day, this debate will play out more in political circles than financial markets. In financial markets, at this moment, what investors are primarily focused on is when will the U.S. economy come back online? Mnuchin came out and said May and June, we will start to see reopenings. And the presumption being by the end of the summer, the transition from shutdown to partial reopening and then ultimately the full reopening will be key in gauging the depths of the recession. It's still far too early to get a true sense of how consumer behavior will be impacted as a result of the pandemic, but that will be a central debate over the course of the next two or three months. One metaphor I really like thinking about when trying to consider how all of this is going to play out is thinking of the economy kind of like cars on a highway. They were all driving, you know, 65, 75 miles an hour or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the government forced a sudden stop. You bring a lot of the cars down extremely slow, if not stopped. The nuance then is once they reopen, it's kind of the equivalent of being in a traffic jam and saying, sure, you guys can all go back to driving 65, 75 miles an hour. Fair enough. But all of our experiences with traffic, that's not an immediate response. So we're able to slow things down much, much faster than we're able to get traffic back up to speed. The interconnected nature and everything is similar to that accordion effect in traffic in that you can't get going up full speed until all your customers get going up full speed and their customers and their customers and their customers down the line. So this is going to be a massive coordination problem in returning everything to the way that it was before. I'm very skeptical that it's going to be anywhere near the same timeline that it was shut down in the same way that traffic jams can happen really, really quick, but it can sometimes take a while for them to ease up. 
In keeping with that metaphor, John, I do think that the restarting of the U.S. economy carries with it a different set of incentives than shutting it down. There won't be as much urgency to restart as there was to shut down, obviously given the implications from a pandemic and its nature. However, when the economy does restart and traffic starts rolling again, the movement will be comparable to people rushing to work, otherwise they might lose their job. So I think that there are some key economic incentives for the U.S. economy to get back as close as it can to full steam in the very near term. Whether or not that gets pulled off successfully is the biggest open question. I would expect that anything in the rush to reopen, we will see more errors made than prudence demonstrated. And this is a good time to emphasize what served as sort of a blueprint for the contagion in the U.S., and that is the experience in Italy. This week, Italy's starting to reopen factories and get the economy back moving again on sort of a gradual, staggered timeline. So there could be a lot of attention focused there to see how that process plays out. If things get back online and eventually bars and restaurants reopen on the scheduled date on May 18th, without a surge in new COVID cases or shelter-in-place orders needing to be re-implemented, that to me at least suggests that a similar experience may be coming down the line in the U.S., Sure, the demographic issues and the geographic differences between the countries play a role, but I think at least on the margin, the fact that we're now seeing one of the first and most heavily impacted Western countries reopen could operate as a benchmark for the next few weeks at least. So a lot of this conversation has been forward-looking about the reopening. One of the major data points that's going to come out next week is the first read on Q1 GDP. Consensus is for a drop of 35 4%, something like that. I guess my question is, does it matter? Will the treasury market respond differently to a negative 2% print or a negative 6% print? Or is all that information in the past, we know it's going to be bad, and everybody's thinking about what the reopening process might look like? I think it's been a very long time since the treasury market traded economic data that's been coming in. This started early when initial claims started to be reported in the millions. We've seen that even as recently as Friday's drop in durable goods, the second weakest durable goods print ever, and the treasury market sold off. Now, it didn't sell off dramatically. It sold off by a basis point. But 10-year yields have managed to hold a very tight range for a very long time. And that range in 10s is 54 to 78 basis points. Well, I expect that that will stay in place at least into May. And that implies that GDP doesn't matter. That implies that the Fed doesn't matter. It also suggests that any incoming information regarding the U.S.'s state-by-state attempts to reopen will also be heavily discounted. So what then does that leave the market to trade? John, to your point, there is an emphasis on the timing of reopening the economy. There is an emphasis on the experience of others. Ben, as you pointed out, the Italian staggered reopening will be very pivotal in how investors view this stage of the pandemic. And another big question over the next several months is going to be the direction of inflation. This past week, we saw the new issue five-year tips auctions stop through 3.8 basis points. That matches the largest ever at a time when the auction cleared at negative 32 basis points. 
So while on the surface, such a depressed real yield level is not exactly a screaming buying opportunity, the fact that we still saw record demand by some measures really is a testament to A, the Fed's commitment to keep real yields lower for longer, and B, I would argue, at least a degree of optimism that we will start to get inflation back into the system over a medium-term time horizon at least. That's been one of the newest debates that we've heard in the recent week, and that is whether or not we're going to see deflation in the U.S. economy. My baseline scenario is not a deflationary spiral. The Fed has done a lot to offset any potential long-term deflationary impulses. The fact that oil prices traded at negative $40 a barrel definitely did spur some questions about deflation. There will be downward pressure on headline inflation over the next month or two. It's doubtful that that ultimately translates through to downward pressure on core inflation. However, we're reminded that the Fed was struggling to generate the type of demand side inflation that we would typically expect to see even as recently as 2019. So if they struggle in an environment with the unemployment rate as low as it had been, it will be even more difficult to generate inflation in a post-pandemic world. That doesn't mean that the Fed won't be able to trigger asset price inflation. And that is one of the aspects which characterize the pre-pandemic period. We saw equity prices at all-time record highs. We saw housing prices starting to get well beyond the levels of affordability in a lot of regions. And that might ultimately serve as the archetype for what we should expect in 2021 and beyond. 2021? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's, that's still some ways off. That it is. And I'm already so far behind. And I'm just trying to make it to the weekend. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have several key inputs to help guide trading direction. The first one will be real GDP. Real GDP is expected to drop somewhere between 4 and 5% during the first quarter of the year. Now, that's not the weakness that we ultimately expect to see in the first half. Q2 is going to be dismal by any measures. And we've already gotten to the point where investors are looking beyond the depths of the economic weakness in the very near term and emphasizing instead how quickly the recovery will take hold and we will be faced with the economic realities of a post-pandemic environment. Expectations for changes in consumption patterns and changes in travel and behavior continue to inform investors' decision-making process about what sectors of the real economy to allocate resources, but that hasn't done a great deal for the treasury market other than to anchor rates in a very low environment. We expect very low treasury rates to be a reality for the foreseeable future. The Fed decision, which we get on Wednesday, will further the discussion about potentially more QE, different programs, how large the balance sheet will be, whether we see yield curve caps or not. And all of these ongoing discussions will help solidify this low rate environment for treasuries. What we haven't really seen yet is the translation of all the stimulus that's been pumped into the system into any inflationary impulse. Deflation, because of what we have seen from the energy complex, has become far more topical. 
We don't expect a deflationary spiral to ultimately emerge if for no other reason than the Fed has demonstrated time and time again that they're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the real economy recovers the best it can from the pandemic. In addition to real GDP from Q1 and thoughts from the Fed, we're also going to have month-end. Month-end trading dynamics in the Treasury market have historically been focused on the extension in and around 3 p.m. on the last day of the month. The timing of that has shifted somewhat over the course of the last month. I think there'll be less of an emphasis put on those flows around month-end percent and more of an emphasis put squarely on what may will mean for the timing of reopening of the U.S. economy. As COVID-19 stats continue to come in, expectations are further refined as far as how long the lockdown is expected to persist. As it currently stands in the Northeast, May 15th is the target date for partial reopenings of certain parts of the economy. We've already seen some states start to reopen, some never closed. The reinfection rates in those states could ultimately provide not only guidance for states where stay-at-home orders are still in place, but also market expectations. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the lockdown continues and our collection of baskets weaved underwater amasses, we wonder who's laughing now. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.